This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. We can't make a lot of assumptions about other people. We have to rely on other people to communicate what's okay for them to us. And the same thing, we need to communicate and to other people it's okay at any given point in time. And we need to communicate our boundaries at work, with friends, with family, and also with regards to you know, our sexuality and touch or personal space. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn why Canadians with chronic health issues are reluctant to get proactive health. We'll find out about mindfulness and external boundaries. We'll discuss the treatment of sprained ankles. And lastly, we'll talk about letting unpleasant memories hold us back from the now and what's next. But first, a little bit of business. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. Dr. Alice Cheng is an endocrinologist at Trillium Health Partners, Credit Valley in Mississauga, and St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. She's an associate professor at the University of Toronto and was chair of the 2013 Diabetes Canada Clinical Practice Guidelines. She's also the co-chair of the 2018 Diabetes Canada CSEM Professional Conference, and she's been on the show before. Welcome back, doctor. How are you? I'm very well. I'm, I'm happy to be back. Thank you for having me. So we on the show have talked about COVID repeatedly over the last year or so, but there's one issue that we actually haven't touched upon, and that is how COVID is impacting Canadians who have pre-existing chronic conditions. And we're going to talk about that today, right? Yes, absolutely. So I'm hearing anecdotally through family members, and I have some family members who are doctors as well, that people are reluctant to proactively seek out health care during the pandemic. Is that what you're seeing with your practice and in the hospital? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm hearing as well from my patients is that there is a fear. And the fear is, of course, understandable given everything that's going on. And therefore, people are holding back and holding off from seeking health care proactively because let's say they're having a pain here or there, they'll think, okay, well, maybe it'll just go away because I don't want to bother my family doctor. Maybe I'm not able to get in as efficiently as they thought. I will hold off on my blood tests. Or even, at worst case scenario, patients have been lower going to the emergency department, even for things that they should go for, such as chest pain, because of fear of the COVID situation in the hospital. So I have definitely seen delay in people seeking medical care out of fear. So I think the takeaway point of this interview should be that we're, we're going to try and give people comfort that it is okay to go see your doctor and it is okay to deal with emergencies by going to the hospital if need be, right? Absolutely. And I would love to repeat that over and over during this interview because that is absolutely the most important message. And it is, I'll add to that, it's also okay to go to the lab to get your routine blood work done. 
Yeah. I've heard of instances where even people are, or labs are sending people out like RNs to come out and take blood tests for those who, who aren't mobile. So there are, there are ways of getting the necessary testing done, even if you're still reluctant to go to the labs. Yes. And actually, the labs have done an amazing job of ensuring best practices in terms of safety. Many of them have moved to appointment-only systems, which I think is great. So gone are the days where there's 50 people waiting in the waiting room first thing in the morning, but it's by appointment. So you show up, you get your blood done, you, you go home. So it's very safe from that perspective. Maybe that's the silver lining of COVID, that there won't be yeah. first-come, first-serve medical treatment. We can all have like civilized appointments and, and not you know, spend untold hours waiting. That's right. If anybody's listening out there. <laughs> so there are other tools out there that are helping with diagnosis and prognosis. And, and you know, we've talked about it a bit on the show, but let's talk about virtual healthcare. So virtual care has gotten a huge boom during this time, and deservedly so. I think it was something we should have incorporated a long time ago. But, you know, like, like everyone else, healthcare providers are no different. We, we are reluctant to change until we have to, and this obviously made us have to make changes. So I think all of us have really adopted virtual care, whether it be by telephone or um, virtual in terms of online interaction. And it, in my opinion, has actually been one of the other silver linings from this pandemic is that it has made it possible to do virtual care and that it actually can be very effective and efficient for everybody involved. Uh, So yes, I think all of us have moved to virtual care. And just to clarify, virtual care doesn't mean you don't necessarily get to see your doctor in person. So for example, if you were doing a virtual meeting and you saw something and there was a reason to bring a patient to see you personally, you would still do that, right? I mean, it's almost like a triage tool, isn't it? Absolutely. I I think those visits, uh, and we've all had those visits, right, where we're going in for a prescription renewal or we're going in for for something fairly simple that could, in fact, be taken care of over the phone or or, uh, online, this is a much more efficient tool. But you're 100% right. If someone needs to be seen, if, if we need to lay hands on the patient to examine something, if we need to look at something, touch something, feel something, then absolutely the physicians are available uh, for patients to see. Uh, certainly the hospitals are open. Like all of that is still available. But then I think some of that other stuff that was happening that didn't really need to be touched or felt or seen, then those things can be taken care of in other ways. Right. So I'm going to read you a statistic, which when I saw it was shocking to me, and and I I want to get your thoughts on it. So according to a Don't Put Your Health on Hold campaign, 38% of Canadians surveyed who have been clinically diagnosed with a chronic disease say that they are avoiding the healthcare system altogether during the pandemic. What do you think about that? I think it's real. I think it's realistic. I think it's it's what we're seeing. And, and, and I can understand where people are coming from because from the early days of the pandemic, we have said that the people at highest risk are people with multiple chronic diseases. So if I heard that as a layperson, obviously, the last thing I want to do is put myself at risk. And if I go into a hospital, if I go into a busy healthcare facility, am I going to be more likely to be exposed? Uh, And then there's also the other piece of, uh, certainly in the early days, of of wanting to protect the time of the healthcare providers because they're busy doing other stuff, like busy dealing with the acute issues. And I think that has resulted in people being afraid to do the usual chronic care that's necessary from a prevention perspective. Do you deal with uh, uh, chronic care patients in your practice? Absolutely. So in my practice as an endocrinologist, there's a lot of diabetes. 
and diabetes has been named from day one as one of those important risk factors for COVID. Right. Now, the good thing about diabetes, though, is that it can be taken care of virtually. So the need to come in and, and have me lay hands on the patient is much less, except for certain parts like a foot, foot care exam or, or a foot infection. But for the most part, a lot can be done the old-fashioned way over the phone or, or online, but it does require blood work to be done, and I have certainly seen many of my patients be afraid to go get that blood work. Do you think, is it just as simple as people are concerned about exposing themselves to COVID by going to a hospital, or do you think there are other sort of elements of play that are forcing people with these chronic issues to avoid getting proactive help? I actually do think the biggest reason is the fear factor, because when I have spoken to patients and tried to understand why certain things weren't done, it, it was mostly out of fear. And, and when I say things not being done, it, it'd be things like getting blood work, uh, but also things like starting new medications, because there was this fear of, well, there's so much stuff going on right now, I don't want to start something new, because if I have a problem, I don't want to go to the hospital. And, and that's been a, a, a common issue. And as I alluded to earlier, I think in the beginning there was this, I, I don't want to bother the team because they've got more important things to be doing, which, which is unfortunate because uh, that's not true. Uh, obviously, the, the very frontline workers in acute care hospitals, yes, they're busy doing those things, but the emergency departments are still open and there for emergencies. And in the outpatient space, uh, we're all continuing to provide care because we recognize if we fail to do so, then the implications are huge because down the road, those chronic disease things are, are, are going to build up, build up, and then become a, a serious issue that then requires hospital, etc. So we, we very much want to continue the preventative care aspect. I think there may be other factors, and, and I'm just opining here. I don't have any facts to back it up. But in my experience, one of the spinoff effects of COVID is that every single thing that we're doing has become more complicated and more time-consuming. And it may just be that people are fatigued, that they it's just one thing that they feel that they can let go of because it's just too much work to do what would normally have been easier to do. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, that, that certainly could make sense. And that has been a reason for certain sort of healthy behaviors to have been put to the side. Yep. Is uh, There's also the, the mental health aspect of this entire stress of the situation. But I, I would like to put a bit of a positive spin on that in that I have seen for some of my patients that this time has actually been an opportunity to implement some of those healthy behaviors. Sort of once the mental health pieces are addressed, of course, then they actually see it as protected time to do some of those things. You've touched upon mental health, and I think you know, I wouldn't classify fears of exposure to a disease as a mental health issue, no. but I would say that in my experience, and again, this is anecdotal with people that I'm speaking with, a lot of people are under that stress that you referenced. And I, and I think that maybe they're not thinking as clearly as they might otherwise, because there's just so much on their mind. And I think that's impacting their decision as well. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I think all of us can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> because I think yeah, all no. of us have, have had that cross our minds because there's just so much on our plate, so much to think about that this is one thing that could, that could wait, right? It's not like people are consciously, I'm going to put my health on hold. It's more, that can wait. That yeah. can wait till later, right? I, I think it's more that. Yeah, that's just one more thing I can't deal with right now. Or, or they're trying to be selfless and maybe they're helping somebody else and they don't want to turn their attention to themselves because other people are relying on them, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. 
But let's sort of put some laser focus into this. There are people that are putting themselves at significant risk by not following through with these proactive healthcare just because of their their concerns. So who's most at risk for delaying care? Well, I think people who have chronic diseases that require regular follow-up. So, for example, in in my selfish world, I'm going to say diabetes, for example, where it is so important to be getting the regular blood work and also to be testing your blood sugars at home and to be following those parameters because we know the risk of complications are cumulative over time, right? So it's, it's the effect of every day added up. So we're now a year into this. It's not like this was just going to be two weeks, in which case, okay, sure, two weeks, no big deal. But we're, you know, a year in and and who knows how much longer this is going to be. So it is very important to continue those daily things that you would have otherwise done. And then those every three to six months follow-ups with your team so that we can continue to make adjustments and tweaks because diabetes does not rest during covid right? The, any other chronic disease, your blood pressure control, all of that stuff, it, it, it doesn't go away during COVID. It's still there. It's still doing whatever damage it, it is trying to do. And your ability to stop that persists during this time. So it's important to control what we can, especially during this time where it feels like there's so much outside of our control. Let's control what we can to keep ourselves healthy. Okay. Circling back to virtual care and, you know, we've sort of outlined why it's beneficial, but it also has limitations as well, right? Do you want to expand upon that? Sure. So I I think that the biggest limitation is when there are physical exam things that are required, right? Right. So again, we have to touch and feel something. I I think there is another piece to it, which is the the human contact. I mean, there there is something very nice about seeing someone in person and, and not just seeing the the facial expressions which you could get on a on a on a call that's on the computer, but even the body language and and the the feeling of being in the same room with another person and the empathy that can be delivered that way. I think that is missing. So it's been a year now. I definitely miss seeing my patients that I've seen for years now and and actually seeing them face to face. I'm still calling all of them. You know, no no appointment has been missed during this pandemic, but. It's not quite the same thing. So I, I think in the future we're going to see a hybrid model where some of the easy things take care of efficiently, but yet we still continue to at least see our patients with chronic diseases you know, once a year at a minimum or perhaps more depending on the situation. Okay. So we emphasized it at the beginning of this interview, but we're going to do it again right now because we're getting close to the end. And the question is, is it safe to see your healthcare professional in person during the pandemic? Yes, it is safe to see your healthcare professional, to go get blood work done, and if you need to go to the emergency department, go to the emergency department. Safety measures are in place everywhere, and everybody is doing their best to, to keep uh, everyone safe, be it the person who's seeking care as well as the healthcare provider. And it's so much more important to maintain your health chronically so that things don't accumulate over time. And we have time for one last question, and that is this. What should our listeners do to ensure that they aren't putting their health on hold while we're still at the tail end of this pandemic? Everything that you were asked to do before, whether it be measure your blood pressure, measure your blood sugar, take your medications, do your blood work, all of those things should still be done and should still be done using the timelines that were there prior. Uh, So nothing new has to be added. It's just a matter of continuing to do what you've always been doing prior to the pandemic. 
Well, that is fantastic advice, and I and I'm glad you've come on the show to sort of set everybody straight. So everybody out there who still has their doubts. I sincerely hope that we've given you a little bit of comfort here and that you continue to take care of yourself as if we weren't in the pandemic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Looking for natural supplements to boost your immunity? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's rebuilding your immunity after an illness or simply maintaining a healthy immune system year-round, New Roots Herbal is here for you with a wide range of proven formulations. Discover Protector, Astralgus 8000, Ultra Zinc, and their best-selling Vitamin C8. If you're looking to build your immunity from within, look no further than New Roots Herbal, available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Tracy Sograti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at sogratiyoga.com, Sograti Yoga on Facebook, and at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. And last month, we discussed mindfulness and interior boundaries. Yeah which necessitates us discussing external boundaries today. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Thrilled, actually. Okay. So what are external boundaries? Okay. So they're basically the limits that we need to become aware of and to be able to communicate to other people. And I really enunciated communicate because external boundaries don't exist for anyone else around us unless we're able to communicate them. Of course. Okay. So that's a huge piece. And I I would say it's a rate limiting step for many people is the communication. We have to understand that they're dynamic. They change all the time. So often people come to me to work on boundaries and they think, okay, I'm going to figure out what my limits are and then that's it. I'm going to be good for the rest of my life. Well, your limits change moment to moment, day to day. And so you need to be psychologically flexible enough to tolerate that in yourself and also in others. Mm-hmm. They're sometimes hard to predict, right? Sometimes we don't know when we're going to have a boundary about something until it comes up at a specific moment in time. Right. You know, and think about when you're with a good friend, right? You, yep. you think, oh, I can always be with this person. Nothing's ever going to come between us. And then something will, of course, come up, right? Mm-hmm. They're self-defined. So what that means is you as an individual have a specific culture, you have a specific personality, a window of tolerance, a personal history, and all of that contributes to your sense of what's okay or not okay at a given point in time. And so we can't make a lot of assumptions about other people. We have to rely on other people to communicate what's okay for them to us. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And the same thing we need to communicate in to other people it's okay at any given point in time. And we need to communicate our boundaries at work with friends, with family, and also with regards to uh, you know our sexuality and touch or personal space. And along with the fact that they're dynamic, one thing I want to really highlight is that because they're dynamic, when you have more capacity in your life, so say you're less stressed, there's less pressure, you might relax your boundaries and promote intimacy that way. Right, right? So, yeah. So do more with people. Maybe you are more vulnerable. You'll expose yourself more. Tell people a little bit more about what's happening because you can tolerate it. And at other times when you're really stressed or there's a lot of pressures, you may intensify your boundaries because you need to do that in order to keep yourself healthy, which is safe in this case. That makes sense. I I mean, you know, I'm simplifying it, but if you feel better about yourself, if you're being positive, Mm -hmm. you're much more likely to allow people in, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a good point. And that kind of speaks to the internal boundaries that we spoke about last month. Yeah. Absolutely. So we discussed the relationship between internal boundaries and mindfulness last show. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a bit about the relationship with external boundaries? Yeah, absolutely. So if your external boundaries are really about your relationship to the external world, right? Mm -hmm. Then that means that in order to state your boundaries, communicate your boundaries, even know what they are, you have to have awareness. Without awareness, not only are you not going to be able to set boundaries or limits, you're not going to be able to receive them. And that's really important in building healthy connection or healthy relationships. Without that awareness, you're just going to be on autopilot, right? And especially like if you're outside your window of tolerance, which just means, you know, stressed or in a place of distress, you will predictably recreate the circumstances you're trying to avoid. And, you know, that's a standard thing that happens. But the other piece, too, and I think that this is important for people is, you know, you won't understand if you're not aware in the present moment and know that this is a skill that everyone can build. Well, can I stop you there? Yeah. Do you really think that everybody can do this? Because I know some people who have better EQs than others. Yeah, of course. So this kind of, I mean, this is a segue here into mindset. Yes, everybody can improve. Okay. Can everybody get to the same place? No. Okay. Okay. But can everybody improve? Absolutely. Does that sort of succinctly answer the question? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if we think about awareness, even knowing when somebody has transgressed a boundary with you, right, is going to be really difficult if you're not aware of your thoughts, your feelings, and your own body sensation, right? So without awareness, if there's a boundary transgression, somebody says something or does something that feels uncomfortable, violating, etc., you might walk away with this kind of diffuse overall feeling of yuckiness, but not understand why. And then you'll behaviorally act out that yucky feeling, and you won't even know where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things, like I was thinking about examples for our show today, and I was thinking, yeah. I was thinking about teaching yoga, actually, and this is, I'm going to go pre-COVID times. So one of the things that often happens in a yoga class is that the instructor touches students. Right. Yeah. Okay. Really common. There's physical touch. Sometimes the instructor's body is touching the student's body. Sometimes they're massaging feet or neck. And often that's happening without sort of clear consent. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 
So say somebody comes into the class, and, and, and I say this as someone who instructs yoga. Right? Yep. So say someone comes into the class, and that is outside their window of tolerance for any number of reasons. Yep. Okay? Mm-hmm. And their body gets adjusted, groped, massaged, yeah. lotioned, yeah. without them being aware that that's coming. And they don't even know that that is going to put them out of there. They're going to walk away from the class feeling this sort of indistinct feeling of like, oh, that I didn't like that and not even understand why they didn't like it. Okay. What other circumstances would sort of signify that you need to set those external boundaries? Okay. So if you notice that you tend to be a people pleaser, yeah. right? And then in, in conjunction with that, if you're always overwhelmed, always exhausted, and always the person who's like, I'm busy, I'm so busy. If you consistently say yes when you actually want to say no. If you beat around the bush to say no, but will say yes if you're put on the spot. Yeah. If you're touched in a way that feels uncomfortable. So, you know, like the example I gave with the yoga class. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, this one is so good. This one is so good. If you notice that someone asks for personal information, so say you're at a social gathering yep. and someone asks you a personal question and you don't really know them and you don't want to answer it, but you do just because they've asked you. Yeah. And that's a tricky one, right? Like I say that because that is hard. You know, it's funny when we covered the internal boundaries last time you were mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. I could check off pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. And with the external boundaries, I check off almost none of them. I know. Right. I know. Like, like yeah. it's just not me, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's just, you know me, right? Like, I've, yeah, you've got very strong external boundaries. I do. Yeah. And I mean, without getting into a session with you, sometimes I wonder if that sort of started out as a protective mechanism, because usually we expand our external boundaries as a way of maintaining safety. And then the other place that I sort of go, now I'm interviewing you. What, what yeah, I you know, go, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> the other piece that I wonder about is, was it trained into you as a lawyer? Yeah. Because it, it could happen either way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Like, hmm, is it a weakness? I don't see it as such, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, th- I think. I it's think, not a weakness. It's not a weakness. No, it's a strength. I think people understand my, my boundaries pretty well. Like yeah. one of my strengths is as a communicator. And I think mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm pretty much what you see is what you get. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think most people understand what they can say to me and what they can't. So mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. you go. Mm-hmm. So for those who need to learn how to set an external boundary, right. So we're not mm-hmm. talking about me now. This isn't yeah. about me. Yeah. What are some of the suggestions that you have? So first thing is recognize that it's a lifelong process. You're not going to get it right all the time. And even if you, you know, do it really well for a period of time, you'll suddenly end up with a toxic person in your life and realize, oh, I've got to set a really clear boundary and, and you know, don't beat yourself up when it happens. Mm-hmm. So number one, you got to reflect on your history. So notice, you know, have you been responsible for managing other people's feeling experiences for your whole life? You know, do you know where you end and somebody else begins? When you're around someone who is having really strong emotions, do you feel responsible for fixing it and making it go away? So these are really important things to reflect on, and that'll just give you a sense of why it's happening. And then the next step to kind of get to a place of setting the boundary is to ask yourself, you know, what comes up when you think of doing nothing other than maintaining compassionate presence, of course, in the face of someone either asking you for information that you don't want to share or in the face of someone having a strong emotion. Mm. Okay, so that's sort of the first entrance point to setting a boundary. Then ask yourself what comes up when imagining saying no to someone for X, Y, and Z. 
okay, so what's the worst thing that can happen? And, and to actually write down all of the worst things that could happen, you know, what you believe. Then to write down also what a boundary transgression feels like in your body. Mm-hmm. Like how does it physically manifest for you? Yeah, like what happens, like what, because your body neurologically is going to speak way faster than your thought process. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you can discern when to actually set boundaries by what happens in your body, that's going to be really helpful. Okay. Mm-hmm. The final step is to write out the boundary that allows you to feel connected yet safe and respected, which is, I think, where you're at, Jamie. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then practice communicating it in the mirror using I statements. And this is the, I just need to add this final piece, is you have to practice this when you're outside the situation of setting the boundary. Your practice cannot be in the moment. Okay. That's good okay. advice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and, and letting us understand a bit about this. Will you come back next month? Always. Fan- Always. Fantastic. That was Tracy Sograti. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. NutriPure is a Canadian company which formulates and manufactures natural health supplements over and above industry standards. Since 1989, it set itself apart by providing a line of products that not only reduce symptoms, but target the causes of specific health conditions. In addition to its offering of superior products, NutriPure has always been there for its clientele with around-the-clock customer service led by health professionals. Reach out to their experts on social media and ask about their cleansing programs. Fluxobile and Hepatol for liver health, Intestfibe for colon, and Ingest for kidney. NutriPure, your health is their commitment. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in the MLB and NHL, she has extensive experience dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. And we're talking about some fun ones today. Welcome back, doctor. How are you? I'm doing great, Jamie. How are you doing today? I'm doing great because my ankles aren't sprained, which happened all the time <laughs> when I was running. But now that you know we're, we're fully into spring, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there with ice packs around their ankle areas. <laughs> so let's see if we can help them. How about it? Sounds like a deal to me. I was going to ask you if you've sprained your ankle. I sprained my ankle actually when I was 17. I was playing basketball, yep. went up for a, a layup and came down, landed on someone's foot yep. and went over on my ankle, heard a crack and oh my God, wasn't able to continue playing. And they actually treated me at that time in a cast, believe it or oh, not. Oh wow, it must have been a pretty severe sprain. It was a, well, it was a severe sprain, but it was also like a hundred years ago. So we, okay. we don't don't cast people with ankle sprains right now. So that's I, good news. I also played basketball back in the day, and I played center. So there was a lot of you know there was a lot of up and down, and yeah, I would regularly bust up my ankles. Although I never had a cast. So let's we've kind of touched upon it. What's the difference between an ankle sprain and twisting an ankle? 
they're actually the same thing. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, people refer to ankle sprains as a twisted ankle, going over on your ankle, rolling your ankle. And there can be two different types of sprains, though. A classic ankle sprain is when you roll your ankle and you tear the ligaments at the lower end of the fibula, which is the pointy little bone on the outside of your leg, mm-hmm. versus a high ankle sprain, which tends to occur when you plant and twist. Yep. So. The mechanism of injury is important for us as surgeons. If you say to me, oh, I twisted my ankle and sort of rotated, I think of a high ankle sprain versus going over on my ankle. It's the lower ankle, more classic ankle sprain. Well, I watch basketball still, and and when you hear the high ankle sprain, that's where everybody sort of takes the deep sucking breath because that's the more serious one. Or am I wrong about that? It's definitely a harder ankle sprain to recover from. And that's because it affects the joint between the fibula, that's the outside bone, and the tibia. Versus a classic ankle sprain, that joint is not affected. And it can be a problem, the high ankle sprain. So much longer to recover. So let's try and do some triage for our friends who are listening. And, and that is, if you've sprained your ankle, if you have the twist or the rollover, what's the best treatment? So... The most important thing is to control the swelling right away. Mm-hmm. And everybody's heard of RICE, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. And I do endorse those treatments for an ankle sprain. But I like to add another E, and that is exercise. And I don't mean getting up and running around and playing basketball right after you've sprained your ankle, but doing isometric contractions to activate the muscles in your feet and in your calf are really important for controlling the swelling because the muscles act like a pump and they'll pump out the congestion and the swelling. If you can control the swelling, then the muscles stay turned on and activated more effectively. And then you don't have as much fluid around the capsule of the ankle joint and the ligaments themselves, so you don't tend to get as stiff. So physical therapy or at home you're going to get out your rice uh, protocol. Okay, so do you need to be guided through these isometric exercises or can you do them on your own? So it really depends on how comfortable you are doing exercises on your own. If you're comfortable in doing an isometric, you just hold your ankle in a fixed position and then you're going to push your feet together and then you'll push your hand against the outside of your leg so that you can turn on the various muscles around your foot and ankle. If you're not really comfortable, then I highly uh, advise that you go and see a physical therapist and they'll direct you through it. Okay. In the moment when you sprain your ankle or perhaps when you manage to get home and you've elevated and you're doing the rice, how do you know whether it's serious enough to actually go to emerge or to see a doctor? Well, you'll get a pretty good clue if you can't put any weight on it right away. So if you look down and your foot's pointing in the wrong direction or you can't put weight on your foot, you probably should go and have it checked out and have an x-ray because the mechanism for breaking your ankle and or tearing the ligaments around your ankle is very similar. So I use weight-bearing as the most important guide. Okay. Should you be walking on a sprained ankle? Let's let's say it's not as serious. Is, Is it okay to walk on it? You know what? It's being active is good to a degree, but you have to use common sense with it. And what I tell my patients to do is use pain and swelling as the guide. So if you have a very minor ankle sprain, you can walk on it. You may want to put a compression sleeve to help control the swelling. And I would stay off of uneven ground. The other thing is to not be twisting and turning when you're walking initially. You want to let the ligaments heal. You want to let the inflammation settle. If you've got a really, really swollen ankle and you're limping, 
then you really should be limiting your walking. But as the swelling settles and your range of motion improves, then you can increase the amount that you're walking. And as you strengthen the muscles, then you can obviously expand that into more aggressive activities. Is it worthwhile to have an x-ray if you've sprained an ankle? Is it necessary? If you can't put weight on your ankle, then I would definitely recommend an x-ray. And the other time I would recommend an x-ray is if you're not getting better within the time frame that you would expect. So most people are going to recover in four to six weeks from a typical ankle sprain. But if it's three, six months later and you're still getting a lot of swelling around the joint, then I would get an x-ray because there is a complication um, of recurrent ankle sprains where you damage the talus. That's one of the bones in the ankle. And a little piece of cartilage and bone can be knocked off of the surface of the talus and create painful swelling and locking in the ankle. So if you're not recovering, then I would recommend an x-ray. But if you're able to put weight on it and you're recovering and in an expected time frame, it's not necessary. So it's okay to wait to the outside of the normal time frame, i.e. weeks to get your x-ray, right? It's not something you need to do in the moment or in the same day that you've injured yourself necessarily, right? That's right. So long as you can put weight on your ankle, you don't need to get an immediate x-ray. Okay. So you gave a time limit, of, I think, what did you say, three to six weeks for a sprained ankle? Is that sort of the midpoint or the average, or could it be longer or shorter? What? Yeah, so if you have a really minor sprain where you've maybe just stretched the ligament a little bit and you haven't actually torn any tissue, you can be better within seven to ten days. If you see bruising on the bottom of your foot. And this is a common thing that patients will see if they've actually torn the ligaments. The ligament will bleed and then the blood over time gets pulled towards the bottom of your foot by gravity. Then that indicates that you've got more of a structural injury. And and these ligament tears generally take between four and six weeks. But if you've had a really serious sprain where you've torn more than one of the ligaments, it could take you three to six months to really get back to 100% performance. Right. And it's a continuum, right? Like you're going to see problems. Progress. It may not be linear, but you know, you'll start to feel better. You will have more mobility as it heals, right? It's not like one day you wake up and all of a sudden everything's back, right? <laughs> That's for sure. And, and you're right, it is a continuum because we have to, you have to reach certain milestones. So you have to first get rid of the swelling, then you have to get the mobility of the ankle. And then as you improve the mobility, you're able to improve the strength. And the key really in the end is to get adequate strength because the stability of a joint depends on the static ligaments, the shape of the bones, but then also the dynamic function of the muscles to maintain normal alignment. And once you've had an injury to the ligament, you need to compensate by having stronger muscles and training the position sense and balance of where your foot is on the ground. So the most common problem I see is people Mm -hmm. not strengthening enough. So they're vulnerable to recurrent ankle sprains. Yeah. So, and I presume a good physiotherapist will know how to help you strengthen the muscles in and around the ankle, right? For sure. For sure. It's really important. And not just the strength per se, but strengthening with your foot in different positions so you can prepare yourself to go for a sport. Like, say you're going to play basketball again. If you just train the strength in a linear, straightforward fashion, the muscles won't be as responsive as if you're going to practice pushing off and cutting and changing direction. So it's really important to train all of those components before you get back to full force. Is there anything that you can do to speed up the recovery process? You know, as I said, in the olden days, we used to put a cast on and we know that doesn't work. I think that 
guided motion is probably the most important thing combined with the ice and the muscle activation to really control the swelling. There are some creams. I really like Tramiel cream, trauma care cream. It's uh, as effective as Voltaren. Does that numb the pain? Is that what it does? Or does it bring down the inflammation? It actually brings down the inflammation. It has antifibrotic and anti-inflammatory properties. So it can be very effective. Is that over-the-counter or would you have to get that prescribed? That's over-the-counter. You can find it in a health food shop. Okay. So they don't put ankle sprains in casts anymore. What do they do? Well, you can put on a compression sleeve to help control the swelling or an ankle brace. Those are effective, but the most important thing is to build up your internal brace. Those are the muscles. And very rarely people will need surgery. It's really uncommon. If you do end up with damage to the joint surface and have a loose body or um, injury to the, the bone that needs to be repaired, then surgery could be used. And there are times when the ligaments themselves have to be reconstructed, but it's really not that common. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and and letting us know about what is, I think, a pretty common ailment. They definitely are. It's about 25% of sports injuries. So hopefully we've helped a few people uh, not do the twist. (laughs) That was Dr. Aaron Boynton. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to avoid letting unpleasant memories hold us back from the present and future on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Combining over 30 years in the field of self-development, Rod McDonald is the CEO of Certified Coaches Federation, one of the largest coach education companies in the world. He's also a speaker, coach, and author himself. And for more information on the Certified Coaches Federation, you can visit certifiedcoachesfederation.com. Welcome back to the show, Rod. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. Thanks for having me back. We're going to look today both backwards and in ourselves and in the moment and to the future, because we're going to talk about memories and and what they can do to us, yeah? That's right. You know, it's one of the most important things that we can do as human beings trying to be our best is to look at our past and to understand what we can or should use, and then also what we need to leave behind. Absolutely. You know, how shall I put this? I think you know me well enough to know I can be a glass-half-empty guy, and sometimes when I'm feeling not positive... I will revisit memories of embarrassments or shocks or what I consider to be failures. And, you know, it's taken me a long time to sort of recognize that that may not be the healthiest exercise, right? Absolutely. I mean, what you just explained there is what almost everybody goes through. 
And it is something that when we don't learn how to control it as well as we might, it can definitely make a negative impact in our ability to get going on things and to accomplish the next things that are coming up in our lives. You know, it's almost like we're edifying ourselves and shaping our expectations based on what's happened before, which is natural, right? Like, I mean, you have these experiences and collectively they sort of impact uh, your worldview and, and how you function in the present and, you know, how you want to function in the, in the future, which can be both good and bad, I, I would suppose. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, the, the thing with memory is that it is there to serve a purpose. Now, some of this is theoretical yeah. in the sense that we don't really know how or why our brains formed the way that they did, other than by us looking at other animals in the world and so on. But what we do know is that we have this very thorough ability to look at the past. And, you know, as long as we are a normally functioning human being, we can look back throughout most of our lives. In fact, going back probably to, you know, for most people, their earliest memories are, you know, four years old, five years old, something like that, maybe even three years old. And so we have this ability to sort of scan back and look at things, remember things. We can sometimes hear things and even sort of get physiological responses, you know, whether it's a a faster heartbeat or shallower breathing or whatever the case may be. And it can definitely either positively or or negatively impact how we proceed in the world. And, And if we don't get control of that, then we're sort of subject to these sort of automatic responses that we've conditioned ourselves either intentionally, but usually unintentionally, to respond with. So is that how memories can hold us back? Is it as simple as that, or is, is there more to it? Well, you know, before we go any further, I think it's important to establish that, you know, we're not talking about, for the purpose of, of this conversation, we're not talking about trauma and, right. you know, things like abuse and things like that, because those are definitely the realm of, you know, a psychologist or other types of sort of traditional psychotherapy and therapeutic uh, responses. And those are phenomenal support measures for those kinds of things. What we're talking about here are the sort of more typical and much more common bad memories where it might be something like, you know, an embarrassment in a schoolyard or trying to give an oral presentation in a classroom and getting embarrassed or somebody teased us or something like that. And so we formed this memory of that situation and we, whether it be consciously or subconsciously, sort of pull back on that. And, uh, and remember that to a point that it holds us back the next time, even 30, 40 years later when we're asked to, you know, get up on a stage and give a speech that there's lingering feelings and memories of those negative times. Yeah. And I suppose it's the emotional element of the memory that sort of sticks out, right? Like it's almost visceral, right? Like they say that, you know, the most intense memories that you have are actually smells. Like, we don't think about that because we're such visual animals, right? But it's almost like on an animalistic level, you know, flight or flight, you know, like if you if you have one of these bad memories, for me personally, it's I'm remembering how I feel in the moment as opposed to the actual event, right? Yeah, it's different for everybody. And, you know, the interesting thing, one of the things that fascinates me the most is that we are unable to actually know what another person is processing, how they're experiencing it. All we have is our own experience, and then we imagine that other people must experience it similarly. But the truth is that, and I've learned this from working with so many people on some of these types of things, that everyone processes things differently. So 
Some people are primarily visual, some more auditory, some more kinesthetic and visceral, as you're talking about. And as well, to a lesser extent, but when it's there, it's still powerful, is the olfactory, so the smell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we when we remember a smell of something, and we often get that. It's less common that it happens, but when it does, it's equally powerful. You know, you, you walk into someone's home or you walk past a bakery and you smell, you know, fresh baked bread or cookies or something, and, and it brings you right back to... You know, mom's cooking in the kitchen 40 years earlier or something. Yeah. So that's the olfactory, and the other is gustatory, the taste. And so we formulate these memories all throughout our lives, and the more impactful they are, then the more we'll remember them and the more, the more they'll influence us. But there is a way for us to take some of those unpleasant or negative memories and actually modify them. And the simple way that I describe this is, you know, if if you can imagine that you're afraid of something, then you can also imagine that you're courageous in front of something. If it's created in the mind, then you have the capacity. It usually takes practice, but you have the capacity to create whatever other state that you want to manifest. Okay, so what other ways can we deal with these past memories that are unpleasant? So, you know, what's interesting is that uh, while it's helpful to know what the memory is so that we can have even more control over manipulating it, all we need to really understand is that we're having an experience now as a result of something that happened in the past. And so there's a few simple things that we can do to actually sort of take that memory, that experience, and reprogram it, because that's essentially what it is. Right? I mean, we take in information in the form of what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we smell, what we taste. And our brain encodes that into our nervous system as a memory. And so all that is, because the the thing that happened isn't actually in our brain, right? You know, if we fell off our bicycle, that was something that happened to me when I was in grade six. I I was showing off in front of a schoolyard full of girls and I I fell off my bike and was thoroughly embarrassed and broke my arm. Mm. And that, you know, certainly had the ability to be a a formative memory for me and and might have have held me back. But the truth is that that falling off my bicycle and breaking my arm isn't in my brain. The memory of it is, and more importantly, the emotions of it still are. Right. So what we can do, and I'll just go through this briefly for the sake of the listeners who might want to experience this, is that if there is an unpleasant memory, and again, we're not talking about trauma, psychological trauma, we're just talking about something unpleasant that we remember, and it could be something from last week or, or 10 years ago or 30 or 40 years ago, but the steps to follow would include this. So if you're sitting down, you can sit up tall away from the back of the chair, or if you want to stand up, it's even more powerful if you stand up. And the purpose of doing that is, is what I call a kinesthetic rally. You're actually rallying the body, and we know that when we kinesthetically, physically actually put our body into different positions, it actually rallies different emotions. And we know on the flip side that if we sort of sit down and we hunch and we slouch and we sort of put our chin into our chest, it's very difficult to feel strong and courageous. So we sit up tall, we stand strong. The next step is to breathe deeply and slowly, which actually is what I call a parasympathetic response. So you're calming the nervous system. You're giving strength from the physical. You're giving calmness from the breath. The next step is to remind yourself 
that the memory that you are addressing is not actually happening, but just simply stored data. And this is where you're using your rational conscious mind to go up against the subconscious emotional memory. Now, typically, before I go on, I'll just say that the the conscious mind is not as strong as the emotional side of the mind, but we can use all of these things together to actually balance things out. So we sit up tall, we breathe, we remind ourselves that the memory's not actually happening, that it's gone and it's in the past. And then we add in a little bit of gratitude and we thank our body, we thank our brain, we thank ourselves for an attempt to protect ourselves because that's essentially what that memory is trying to do. You know, whether it's me falling off my bike when I was in grade six or, you know, being embarrassed at, a, you know, giving a presentation at school or something, that's our body reminding us to say, hey, you don't want to feel that pain again. So don't go and put yourself in that risky situation. And so the technique that I suggest for my clients is to just thank the brain and thank the body and say, hey, thank you, brain and body, for showing up and trying to protect me. But you know what? I don't need you right now, but I appreciate you being there for me. And it's sort of a sort of a, a playful way of, of having gratitude for the natural defense mechanisms that we have. And then the next step is to extract whatever lesson may be available. And that may be, in the case of me falling off my bike, don't show off. <laughs> <laughs> don't be a hot dog, yeah. Yeah, and don't take those turns quite so tight because yep. that's, that's what caused it, right? So there is there is a lesson in all of these things. So maybe, maybe the presentation lesson was be more prepared. Maybe it's to anticipate questions, whatever the, the case may be. And that's cleaning up the memory to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let go of the negative stuff, but I'm going to keep the valuable lesson that is still there. And then two more steps. One is to reinforce your knowledge and wisdom, which is just to be, again, consciously appreciative that you have the ability to think these things through and to process them differently. And then lastly is to uh, practice leveraging that renewed memory and think ahead into the now into now and the future to say, how will I use this going forward? How will I use this refined memory to serve me better because I'm in charge of who I am and I'm going to make the decision about how I'm going to use this lesson to my benefit. Well, thank you so much for this. I'm hoping that everybody who listens will remember it and <laughs> and use it positively in the future. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Jamie. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Alice Cheng, Tracy Sograti, Dr. Aaron Boynton, and Rod McDonald. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The March-April issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you know you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss maintaining healthy blood glucose levels, how to avoid gardening injuries, micro changes for your health, and the ins and outs of organic foods. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.